You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Well, just after Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar the dreadful news about his dream, we pick up the story here in chapter 4, verse 28 of Daniel. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. Now at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, who loved to give decrees, is now recognizing there's ultimately only one who gives decrees that are always effective, always followed, always stand, and that is the Lord God Almighty. Well, on this episode of Bede, we are continuing our series in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, with a consideration of Article 3 of God's decree. Now, Michael, when we consider this article in the scope of church history, I'm curious, what comes to mind for you? Any particular doctrinal controversies or any particular theologians that might come to mind? Or in other words, what are some of the great doctrines these seven sections take up? Yeah, I mean, probably the first pe- person that comes to mind is, is Augustine and his quarrel with Pelagius ah. about these matters, which um, basically stretched over 20 years or so from the 14s till uh, Augustine's death in 430. Uh, not long before his death, he was writing about predestination um, to uh, a group of monks in um, uh, southern France who had basically embraced not completely Pelagius' view that we are totally free in our actions in this world, 
but something similar, uh, what would later be described as semi-Pelagianism. But it's a, it's an ongoing, it's been an ongoing controversy. Um, it, it gets raised again in the ninth century, century with uh, Gottschalk, um, who defends an Augustinian position and uh, various opponents. Um, it's obviously central to the Reformation. Um, the, probably the most famous uh, uh, element of it or as, uh, example of it is Erasmus and Luther. Yeah. Bondage of the will. Yep. Isn't, that, isn't that amazing treatise? I mean, unfortunately, would you agree, Michael, that a lot of, a lot of our students, that's all they've read, maybe just excerpts from that, and they think that's the only side of Luther, but he does just skewer Erasmus in that, right? We don't want to model our pastoral care after that book, though it is a great one. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. Luther can sometimes be um, intemperate in his in his language, um, but yeah, then Arminius, the Synod of Dort, um, uh, Edwards, Jonathan Edwards was very in the 1750s very concerned about the inroads of a perspective on human freedom that undermined this kind of confessional orientation. So it's been, a, it's been a controversy that's reared its head again and again and again in the history of the church. And even in our day, would you agree, Michael? I mean, here we are, contemporary evangelicalism, uh, even in our own Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, and you mentioned the word, that the word alone in some quarters, when you say predestination or God's sovereign decree, that can make some people really nervous. That can make people, I mean, that can turn a friendly conversation uh, another direction pretty quickly. So but the, my point is it's it's a very relevant section of the confession even in our day. Yeah, yeah. Um, it has been, uh, you know, in the, in the SBC there's been concerns about um, this teaching or elements of this teaching or how this teaching is expressed or how these biblical passages are to be understood. Hmm. Um, the publication of what was known as the traditional kind of the traditional perspective, um, you know, arguing that, um, you know, I remember the statement that, you know, they're, we're, we're not Arminian, we're not Calvinist, we're Baptist, hmm. which, to be honest, is nonsensical. Well, I was going to, what do you it, think of that comment? Well, <laughs> I guess I, mean, I know now. Yeah, it, I'm being kind here. It's nonsensical. <laughs> because... Being a Baptist is ecclesi an ecclesiological affirmation. Mm -hmm. It's not a soteriological affirmation. The Arminianism and Calvinism deal with soteriological issues, not uh, not uh, ecclesial issues of governance, church-state relations, etc. Well, Michael, I think you've already got our listeners pretty excited because in the first five minutes of this episode, you've you've mentioned predestination. You've mentioned. Arminianism, Calvinism, uh, all these wonderful, and I do mean that. I mean, I, I love these topics. And just to orient our listeners where we are, here we are, Article 3 of the London Baptist Confession, 1689. And the title uh, of this article is Of God's Decree. And there's seven sections, some would call them chapters, but there's seven sections in this particular article. And I wonder if you see it the way I do. It looks like the framers... Uh, in the first two sections, I see, or I'm reading, a general understanding of God's decree. And we're going to look at these in particular, but kind of the, the decree of all events I see in that chapter 1 and 2, or section 1 and 2. And then what's interesting, 
the, the progression of this article, at least as I see it, it gets more and more specific. So when you get sections three through seven, we're getting much more into the particular predestinating work of God. And so it'd be fun, I think, in this, in this episode to move from the general to the particular. I think that's the way the article will, will take us. Uh, if it's agreeable, I, I want to read each section. They're not that long. And I thought what we'd do is I'd read each section and then you and I can just draw out some observations, maybe ask some questions of each section, and I'll try to keep us on the rails because uh, we, we could spend a long time <laughs> in these seven sections of Article 3. But let's, let's do that. Let's start with uh, Article, or excuse me, Section 1. Uh, and, and here you're going to see the decree of all events by God. And here I'll just read it. God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby is God neither the author of sin, nor ha hath fellowship with any therein, nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom in disposing all things, there's that phrase again, all things, and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his degree, uh, excuse me, decree. So a lot there, but Michael, maybe I could put this to you first. If God decrees, we'll just start with a nice light question. If God decrees or ordains all things whatsoever that come to pass, which is what the confession says, how can he not be the author of sin? Which, of course, he's not. Nor do violence to the will of the creature. I mean, how, do we, how do we bring these things together? They would seem contradictory to some. So, so is that is that a light question? <laughs> no, I thought we'd you know just start easy, <laughs> kind of ease our way into this. No, I love this confession because yeah. it just gets going right away. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. This is the you know one of the central issues regarding this whole area of God's uh, predestination, God's coordination um, of of history, etc. Um, you know, to, to if, if 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 it is the case that God is sovereignly uh, in control of all things, how then is he not the author of sin? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, these, the Bible affirms both the um, fact that uh, sin is the responsibility of the sinner, uh, and sin sinners will be judged for their sins that they have committed, uh, that the human creature is free, in the sense that he's free to do what he, he or she wants and will be held responsible for that. And yet God uh, uh, is, is uh, sovereign in all, all of human actings, not only human actings, but angelic actings too, etc. So uh, what this is, you know, this is a paradox of Scripture where you have two things that are true, and yet they cannot be completely reconciled by human, human thought or human reflection. I mean, this, this, th these areas have tried human minds down through the years. You know, not only Paul, for example, in the Bible, but, um, you know, Romans, 
uh, thinking here Romans 9 and 11, but uh, mm -hmm. Augustine, um, Aquinas, Calvin, Pascal. I mean, he, these are these are very challenging ideas. How to how to reconcile human sovereignty, uh, sorry, divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But they are both true. They both have to be held firmly. The denial of uh, divine sovereignty basically leads you to ultimately some sort, well, leads you initially to what we describe today as Arminianism, mm -hmm. um, and eventually will lead to some sort of open theism, where I'm not saying all Arminianism necessarily leads to open theism, not at all, but you, you know, you, the, the desire to preserve the freedom of the creature at the expense of the sovereignty of God eventually ends up, you know, um, uh, where uh, God basically is learning as history unfolds. On the other mm -hmm. hand, the, the re removal of human responsibility uh, to exalt divine sovereignty uh, ends up making men robotic, uh, making also really making God the author of sin, uh, making human sinners basically sit back in their chairs and say, when God, well, I, you know, I, I'd love to stop sinning. And when God helps me to stop sinning, I'll, I'll do it. But till then, I, there's nothing I can do. I'm a sinner born in sin. I'm dead in sin, etc. Uh, hmm. Really antinomianism, either doctrinal or practical antinomianism. That's right. And both, both, both those extremes fail to realize that at every turn, um, we are dependent upon the grace of God to do what, that which is good. Um, but we are also responsible. So, so uh, the faith in Christ, the living the Christian life, are both duties uh, and yet gifts. And that 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 kind of retains the paradox. There is a paradox here. It mm -hmm. has to be retained. If you fail to retain it, you end up in either man is free to the point that God really doesn't know what you're going to do next, or um, you, there is no human responsibility. And uh, the one denies the, the, the central attributes of God that are affirmed again and again and again of God's sovereignty in, over the entirety of creation. And he is omniscient. He, he doesn't, he's not learning. That's he's right. not in the process of becoming. So that's, you know, one thing. And then the other is there is a, there is a, a genuine human responsibility there. We have, we have liberty uh, to act within the, the, the circumscribed context in which we are, are living. Uh, we're sinners, and therefore, apart from the grace of Christ, we are free, but free only ultimately to sin. Hmm. But there is a freedom there, a, a genuine responsibility. So <clears throat> both of these have to be retained, and it's a paradox. Michael, I love what you've done by highlighting the idea of a paradox. And some that's not a contradiction. Like you said, there's two truths that, that do accord. I mean, they, they come together and they're a paradox. They're a mystery, something that might appear contradictory, but in fact is not. Uh, the confession, it seems to happily live in paradox. In other words, this article, the confession affirms without any apologies, the absolute sovereignty of God, as you said, and 
Well, I wonder, can I say it this way? And the reality of human freedom or human responsibility, I'd be using those interchangeably. But absolute sovereignty and, and a sense in which there is human freedom and the confession affirming both, and I don't sense it's concerned about it. And, and I only bring that up because sometimes I think we get concerned about things that the Bible clearly teaches that even, uh, I mean, you mentioned Paul, I don't sense he's ever concerned about it or having a struggle with it as much as he's just proclaiming it and teaching it, that these things go together. Yeah, I think, it, I think there are happening periods in the history of the church where there has been genuine concern about these subjects. Um, I think the Augustinian era in the early, uh, the end of the early church, um, because there had been a long history of the stress on human freedom, because of the determinism of the Gnostics mm. in the second century, the church's battle with Gnosticism basically was a battle against uh, a, a determinism, which argued that certain individuals are born and nothing they can do, they, they'll, they're damned. And certain other individuals have within them a divine spark, and they're saved, whatever whatever they might do, etc. Um, and so the church's response to that was to highlight human freedom. There is mm -hmm. a, a passage in that first paragraph where it says the uh, that nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. I was just thinking of that as you were talking. I'm glad you pointed us there. Yeah. Go ahead. The, the letter to Diognetus, for instance, picks that up and says, you know, violence is not something that God does to to human human persons um I, I think our day since the enlightenment has been a this this has been very challenging for western thought and here i think is very why still very helpful is jonathan edwards his defense of of the the um in his book uh, what we call freedom of the will um which actually uh is a is a, is a defense of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and he's he, he's he's having to reestablish that doctrine on different foundations that say the puritans and reformers had done because the enlightenment unleashed this human project in which okay let, let, let's conceive of humanity as being totally free from the necessity of divine revelation and uh, if there is a god he's left us to our own devices to kind of construct this world and so let, let's kind of see what we can do with that. And um, so if there is a watch cry, I think, of the last 200 years, 300 years rather, it has been freedom. You know, the American Revolution, that's what it's about. The French Revolution, uh, the Industrial Revolution, freedom from backbreaking bondage to various um, enslaving uh, tasks. Um, all the way through to the 20th century, the birth control pill, freedom, freedom to have sex without consequence. And now the, the, the latest kind of uh, play of it is, is transgenderism. You know, I'm, 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 I can be fr my, 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 my who I am is malleable and I am not to be constrained by my body, um, etc. And so I think uh, this is why I think that existentially and um, affectionately uh, this teaching in this is is very very challenging for modern men and women um, even if they do affirm re a reform view because the air we breathe is of all about is all about freedom 
Whereas in Calvin's day, you had a world of hierarchicalism where people were born into society. The, you know, there were those who were in the aristocracy. You recognize that. Um, you don't have movements to uh, destroy the aristocracy. Uh, you don't have movements to, well, they didn't have the technology to change your body. So you can now become a man or a woman or an it or a bird or whatever you want to be. Or um, the or the absolute freedom to kill a child in the womb, right? right. That's how that, you play it out that way. I am utterly free to even discard life. Yep. So, so the, yeah, there were limitations. And so uh, I think in a world like Calvin's, uh, a doctrine uh, as he taught it, the biblical understanding of predestination, etc., was easier for a lot of people to stomach than it is in our world where we've had 300 years of this freedom project. It's a good point, Michael. And you brought up Edwards. And I mean, Edwards would say it's a freedom, but to choose according to our desires. Yep. Right? And those desires, of course, are bound in sin apart from Christ. And yet we're free to choose, uh, again, according to our desires. In many ways, it seems like he's echoing Augustine there, but... He is, yeah, he's very much echoing Augustine, but he's doing it in a very different context. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, the ancient world has, you know, it's it doesn't have the sort of concern with freedom that we do in our culture. And some of that, I, please know what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, therefore, that living in a tyrannical society as opposed to a free democratic <laughs> world is, is you know, they're, they're equivalent or it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that the push towards the abolitionist movement, say, in the British Empire to free slaves and to and that eradicate that sort of thing was not good but i'm just saying that there are impulses that the enlightenment has pushed us towards there are things that the enlightenment has achieved which are absolutely fabulous but without without revelation and without a divine creator it's inevitably going to destroy itself um, and the focus on freedom without that kind of boundary of god and recognizing the sovereignty of God is, I think, destructive. Michael, one to that point, one more comment on this opening section of Article Three. Uh, it, it does speak to liberty. I mean, it does use it uses that word liberty, mm -hmm. um, freedom. Uh, but what what you what we need the Holy Spirit to help us see, obviously, is that there is a freedom or liberty that the Bible talks about that is not in contradiction to being subjected utterly to the sovereign decrees of God. Again, paradox. People don't think those can go together, but it's actually not in contradiction to the absolute sovereignty of God and His decrees. I wonder if you agree with this the way R.C. Sproul put it for me years ago, and I read it, I think it was in his little book, Chosen by God. But he said, he summed it up this way, he said, God's free. I'm free, but God's more free. <laughs> is that an accurate way to put it? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I could, I could, I could see that as helpful. I, I also read that book, and it was very helpful to me. It's been years, uh, but I, I do remember yeah, that he was trying to make sense of, I yeah. think, the confession. Yeah. Know, so. And I, yeah, and I think there's a line in the uh, Book of Common Prayer that in Christ, in God's service, there is perfect freedom. Hmm. Good. Which, as you, which speaks to your point that we tend to we tend to see these as, as 
opposites or irreconcilable. Well, interestingly, it's not, can't leave it just yet because, uh, I mean, th- we see this in the Bible in so many places. One instance, I think, to remind our listeners, where we see God utterly sovereign in decreeing something, but then human agency working it out. I mean, you, you know where I'm going. I'm going to Acts chapter 4, and let me pick it up at verse 27, talking about the cross. I mean, here's Peter preaching. He says, For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, here it is, verse 28 now, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So you have the sovereign decree of God for the cross, but it being worked out, secondary causes, Pontius Pilate and others. Um, both at work. Peter there, as he's preaching, he doesn't seem to have a problem with it. And often I'll tell my, either as a pastor, tell the church or my students, let's just challenge ourselves to not have problems with things that the biblical authors don't. (laughs) So if I'm struggling with the confession here, and I see it clearly in scripture, maybe the issue isn't the doctrine, but it's Lord, more light. I need more light. Work in my heart so I can receive it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, we better make haste to section two here. Uh, we got a few to get through. Uh, let me read this one to you. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. So the question would be, Michael, the confession would answer this for us. Did God decree things on the basis of foreknowledge? Right. Well, this, yeah, I mean, go ahead. Well, I was saying this, this section is clearly saying it's, it's foreknowledge is based on a decree, you know, not just looking into the future and really, oh, that's how it's going to play out. And, and then as if the decree comes after that. But the foreknowledge is based on the decree, right? Correct, yeah. Okay. yeah I think, again, people misunderstand what foreknowledge means. Mm. Foreknowledge in the Bible means not simply that God knows the future, but it, it, it is that God has determined the future. God is in control of the future. Foreordained, could we yeah, say. exactly, yeah. So it's not because God saw something and then he predestined it. That's right. Um, again, what I... You know, I think this is trying to emphasize the sovereignty of God over history again. Um, that God is not, okay, looking down the the road of history, as it were, seeing something would happen. Okay, then I will, I will, I will ordain that. It's rather God is in control. Um, uh, he's not the, 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 the external, the, the secondary causes are not the final uh, determinant of what will take place. That's right. They're just that, secondary <laughs> causes, yeah. not not the first cause. Yeah, I mean, both of these bear, bear on history. The, For instance, the first one, you know, there, there, is, there is secondary causes. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when the, you know, we talk about the French Revolution, we could talk about those secondary causes and the liberty of the actions of men in that and, 
the market economy or maybe disease or pestilence or various other causes, as long as we recognize these are secondary causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise here, it struck me, although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass, so the whole idea of um, alternate history, uh, counterfactual history, um, which is something I find intriguing. Me too. Um, I have I have friends, I won't mention, but you and I both know a very <laughs> famous historian who I remember doesn't like this at all. I remember asking the question, so, okay, so what <laughs> if, you know, Augustine hadn't written his books against Pelagius? Or what if Luther had been burned at Worms? You know, and he, he, no, no, we can't even talk about those sort of what ifs because, you know, because history is, you know, it's got a pathway and that's just getting us into fiction. But I think it's very helpful to recognize that it's interesting. The statement says can come to pass. So there, there might've been alternate futures. Um, but even those alternate futures are under the sovereignty of God. They are. They are. Well, I, counterfactuals to me can help you appreciate the factual. Yeah, exactly. So I don't, I don't mind. I like asking the what if because I can go, what? All that might, might be fictional thinking. Well, yeah, because it didn't happen. But it helps me appreciate all the more the, the factual. So uh, I don't mind yeah, I mean, either. For me, the, uh, the what if, if it's really done well, uh, it really helps you understand what are the secondary causes leading to an event. Yep. Um, now, you can only do it within a certain <clears> compass. <throat> and so Winston Churchill has a book on, as uh, a story ride, rather a, a short a, a little kind of thing, of what if the Confederacy had won the Civil War? How would that have affected the Second World War? <laughs> so wow. you're looking at 80 years, and I'm thinking, you know, that is really, I mean, you've got so much in there. Yeah. That, but, you know, to, to talk about, okay, what would have happened if, if Lee had won the Battle of Gettysburg to the actual war? I right. mean, there you're looking at three or four years. You have to know all the other factors. And that, that can be very, very helpful to kind of flesh out the importance of those secondary causes. I agree. I agree. You know, I wonder if you'd agree with this, Michael. My, the sup- my supervisor on my Ph.D. told me, um, just in a nutshell, that for the Christian historian, we have to keep in mind what we're doing as historians is the study of secondary causes. Yeah, yeah, so, most definitely. I mean, yeah. we recognize there's the first cause, and yeah. here we are, Article 3 of the London Baptist Confession. Yeah. God is the first cause. But as Christian historians, we are immersed in the study of secondary causes. Yeah, exactly. Feeds Podcast is in partnership with h and Publishing, of a formed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.